You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Gary Lawless is a poet, publisher, and editor. He is also the co-owner of Gulf of Maine Books in Brunswick and lots of other things. It's really good to have you in here today. Thank you. Thanks. My big trip to Portland. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty far distance from Brunswick, <laughs> right? It's a long way. Plus, you, you live even further up there, is that right? I do. I live in Nobleboro. So that's just a little bit further down. Yeah, another 35 miles north of Brunswick. Now, am I right that you also have a farm? I live on a farm that was owned by two writers, Henry Beston and Elizabeth Coatsworth. And between them, they published 150 books, and then they left their farm to their daughter, Kate Barnes, who was Maine's first poet laureate and published a number of books herself. So it's, Kate says that the farm grew words and not crops, so yeah. But it's, it's, it's a gentleman's farm in the country, I think. Yeah. I read one of the books that Henry Beston wrote, and it was, about, it was sort of watching his plants grow. Yeah, um, and I'm wondering if the, he must have done that while he was living on your. Well, he did. He did. He had a big herb garden there, and he wrote a book called Herbs in the Earth about that herb garden, and then he had a, a gen- more general book called Northern Farm that was kind of a journal of farm life in four seasons. Yeah. But he wasn't originally a farmer, which was oh, made no. it so interesting. No, no, he was. He he grew up in in Hingham and went to Harvard and and was a kind of a. But he went to the First World War as an ambulance driver and saw such horror that uh, he came back and spent almost two years out on the end of Cape Cod by himself doing work that we would probably now term PTSD work. Uh, and he wrote a book called Outermost House about that, which has become a real classic of, of Cape Cod life. And then after that, he moved to Maine in the early 1930s. So that that kind of leads us nicely into work that you are currently doing mm-hmm. with with veterans of yeah. a more recent war. war. Yeah. I, I worked with veterans originally in the early 90s. I, I was the artist-in-residence at, at Preble Street here in Portland for two years, and I, I ran a once-a-week open writer's workshop for any of the homeless and low-income folks who were using Preble Street, and I started working with um, a number of homeless vets who were coming in during the day. They wouldn't come in at night because uh, they didn't want to give up that last shred of what they owned. But they would come in during the day, and I would get them to, uh, well, some of them told stories, some of them wrote poems, one of them wrote great songs. And uh, one of the counselors that was working at Preble Street then went to the Veterans Center in Lewiston, and I kind of followed and uh, have been do- doing uh, writing groups with combat veterans there so I, so a number of them are, are Vietnam veterans yeah 
and they've told me I think you know for some reason I've found this a lot working with poetry is really different from talking to a counselor or a spouse or a family member and people will say things uh, when they're committing the act of poetry that they don't necessarily say to counselors or, or in conversation with loved ones um, stuff comes out and then um, when it comes out you're not carrying it around inside you uh, anymore so it's it's really um, it's one way I can try to help people heal a little bit through through um, creative work yeah we did an interview with Monica Wood, who is mm-hmm. mostly a fiction writer, but right. she's also done some autobiographical stuff. And a wonderful memoir. Yeah. And not wonderful memoir, and she's a teacher, and she had worked with people who were incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know if she had exactly the same experience you're describing, but there is there was yeah. sort of an opening that she talked about through story. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I've worked, I worked in the old prison in Thomaston when it was there. <laughs> Years ago, there was a... USM professor who was in Thomaston for killing his wife, and he set up a uh, a program in there, for a, actually a degree program for for the University of Maine, and a bunch of us went in and did writing projects with the folks in jail. Uh, and then I published a book about um, Dennis DeShane and and the Sarah Cherry murders, uh, and have been quite involved with that as well. So I've, I've yeah, it's it's different there. It's different there because. With the vets, they're still out in the world, and with and with the disabled folks I work with, they're uh, we're trying to get them more out into the world. And and uh, when you're behind bars, I can't really help them get out into the world. I can help them feel better about themselves, perhaps, and the way they uh, relate to each other. But uh, <laughs> I'm not going to break them out. You know. Poetry can only go so far, you know. Like <laughs> I love poetry, and I also know that one of the big arguments against poetry is its, I don't know, seeming impracticality, which I find very interesting because people will say, well, you can't make money as a poet. But if we decide only to do things that we can make money with, then first of all, we may never learn that we actually could make money as a poet. And second of all, we're really limiting ourselves and valuing only very specific things. And if you choose to work in a creative art, if you're doing it to make money, you probably shouldn't be doing it. That's not really, I don't think, what it's about. But I, I also tell people that I go in and do poetry workshops, and if it helps you to elucidate what you're thinking, to translate your thought into language, you know, you can tell the doctor more specifically what you want, or you can tell the mechanic at the garage more specifically what you want, or you, 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 it helps you be more lucid and clear in your language, so that I think that is a positive thing in the world. And I used to go into high schools and uh, do poetry, and in the 70s and 80s, nobody wanted to rhyme. The high school kids didn't want to rhyme. That was old-fashioned. No, we don't want to do that. We want to be Allen Ginsberg. Uh, now I go in, and they all want to outrhyme each other but they see it in terms of rap and hip-hop yet there are forms there are regular beats there are forms there's rhyming and and so there's, there's this wonderful shift back to rhyme that i see when i go into schools and and it's it's cultural and it's not necessarily because they want to write a sonnet um but whatever has brought them back to rhyme you know it's it, it's uh, it's fine with me <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah I have a poem that you wrote, which I'm just going to read a few um, 
lines from. And this is, I believe, called Caribou Planet. Oh, okay. Will I discover the yellow dog who lives within the sunlit garden of your body, breathing deep water like old cave walls, spirals of moisture and aged stone? Will I discover the hidden passage, the lost and forgotten tunnel? How marvelous to find a wall of muscled flesh. How wonderful these beasts, how soft, as if I had crawled through the labyrinth of rock to come upon a garden of sinew in the lush bloom of pelt, all moving in spirals toward the chambered ceiling, torches flickering. <laughs> that just, I, and that's only a part of this poem, yeah. but that just puts you into this place that, I mean, it's so evocative. Oh, yeah, I'm actually dreaming that I'm inside a dog of mine who had passed away. Uh, but also, when my wife and I got married, we went to, um, we spent our honeymoon in central France going into caves to look at cave paintings. So I was hearkening back to those cave paintings in the in the dream. Um, a weird thing. I I've I go to Italy almost every year, and I've got five books of poems out in Italian and Italy. And the Italians, of course, have a whole different take on translation. So they translated that poem, thinking that I was having an affair with a with a woman. I was I was calling a female dog, basically. Uh, so the, the title of the poem was Cagna Bastarda in, in the, the Italian. And I read it a couple times and didn't wasn't, uh, then I didn't speak Italian, so I didn't really know what the translator was reading. When I would read in English and they would read in Italian. And they were, I was reading this poem about this dog that I loved who had died. And they're reading this poem about me having an affair and, uh, and uh, of course, very Italian twist. And the first couple times I read it, people came up to my wife and said, don't you feel bad when he reads that? And she loved that dog too. So she said, I cry every time he reads it. So then they were convinced that their, their translation was right. But finally someone told me the difference between the two and, and uh, we, we got a different translator for that. But you know, you have to be careful with poetry. And uh, I went to Lithuania for a week to poetry festivals and my, my translator there was drunk the whole time and never actually read anything I had written. I would read in English, and then he would tell stories in Lithuanian or read poems of his own. I, you know, I never knew, and this went on for seven nights. I, I never knew what he was going to do, but it was never anything I wrote. So, you know, translation's an interesting thing, but a lot of creative arts are translations because you get the idea in your head or your heart or some other part of your body, and then you choose a way to express it out into the world, and I'm choosing to do it in the English language with somewhat proper syntax and grammar, but I could be dancing it or singing it or painting it or cooking it or, you know, there's any number of ways to bring those ideas into, you know, from your heart out into the world. We went to Cranberry Island to interview the artist mm. Ashley Bryan, and yeah. he is well, first of all, he's been doing things for a long, long time. Two hundred years. Yeah, I, he's, think. He's, I didn't want to say this, but he's got. <laughs> he's some, in his nineties. He's got some it. years behind him. Yeah. But what I loved about our conversation was that his art took so many different forms. Mm. That he was thinking right. about things visually. That's what people know him for as as a painter and a bookmaker. But he also thinks about art from a musical standpoint, mm -hmm. and he also thinks about it poetically. Yeah. He always recites poems. In his, in his talks, Langston Hughes will come rolling out of him. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's a wonderful combination. I wish I had more skills. <laughs> you know, I'm jealous of that. 
But is that more common than not, that if you are somebody who is open to being creative, that you're creative in lots of different ways? I think it's it's common in that if you're creative in that way, you're constantly searching for new ways to express yourself. You don't want to do the same thing over and over again. I mean, some people do, and that's fine, but I, I think you do try to find new ways to do that. Um, and once you get interested in translation, a whole whole world opens up because we, we really, as poets, we really only know European poets and American poets. And, uh, you know, Portland has poets fr from Sudan and Somalia and Iran and Iraq and Syria. And, you know, there's this wonderful mix of, of languages. We don't know the language, first of all. We couldn't name poets and musicians from a lot of their cultures. And yet, here we are friends and neighbors in a community. So it, I think it, you're also constantly educating yourself about the possibilities of language. Because uh, you can do a lot of things in other languages that you can't do in ours. When I interviewed Reza Jalali, mm -hmm. who is a poet and artist yes. and um, I guess teacher. Many things. He's so many things. I don't <laughs> want to you know, pigeonhole him into anything. But when I interviewed him and then when I watched him give his speech at Maine Live, you know, his words and the way that he was able to translate this life that he had lived before, mm -hmm. um, it was so much, that had so much more of an impact on me than just saying, this is the man, this is his biography, here are some, here are some factual things about his life. So it, it really gave a lot of power to his past. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's true of a number of people in Maine right now because, you know, they, they come from situations of, abuse and violence and horror that we can't really understand as as pretty comfortable Mainers and and uh, you know there's there's a, a Portland poet Kifa Abdullah who was you know who was in the Iraqi army and was a prisoner of war in Iran and, and for six years didn't even have a window to look out and and can now he's a joyful wonderful painter and poet and artist and and he made it through that horrible situation that I think most of us can't even imagine being in a room for six years and not knowing what season it was, what time of day or night it was, and not seeing other living things except your jailer, which is not really the living thing you want to see. Um, you know, so I, 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 I'm constantly trying to learn. That's what I've, I've last 30 years I've been working with refugees and folks with disabilities and prisoners and, and just trying to, and homeless folks, and trying to learn about the realities of their world here in my own state. And the way I get them to tell me their stories is, is uh, trying to get them to write poems. And if they commit that act, then all of us have access to those stories. You know, if I can find ways to get them out to the, to the world. Um, I've got this gig at the Maine Humanities Council right now where once a month I'm putting up a poem from a community of voices in Maine that maybe people haven't heard. Uh, so, so your your guest at class uh, was last month's. Uh, this month is a Maliseet woman, Miku Paul, who lives here in Portland. And, you know, and, and I've had a Palestinian poet, an Iraqi poet, and you know, they, and they all live here in Maine. Uh, it's an amazing uh, composition of of community that we try not to deny. But uh, you know, and if we listen to each other, then we learn a lot. We've been talking about people who have a voice, even if their language isn't one that we share. Mm -hmm. But with Spindleworks and in other yeah. um, 
ways you have worked with people who have disabilities who may not always have a voice or may not be able to use it the same way that the rest of us can. Yeah, well, it, it depends on what you mean by voice. You know, I mean, I, I've I've done poetry with uh, deaf folks, and there's a there's every year there's a national deaf poetry uh, gathering where people do their poems in sign language, and it's gorgeous. Uh, and you know, and then there are a lot of people who don't read or write, um, but I tell them Homer probably didn't read or write, and he did okay. You know, so uh, that that was true at, at Preble Street too. There were people who had reading disabilities. Uh, there's quite a few people maneuvering the world, and we don't realize they don't read or write. You know, um, they have difficulties like going to the restaurant. What do you order if you can't read the menu and you don't cook at home that much because you can't read recipes? Uh, my friends at Spindleworks write amazing poems, but it's it's more of an oral tradition, uh, and that's fine. You know, I just I. I, I, when I work with people, I don't correct their syntax and grammar. I try to get them to tell me things. And then I usually I read it back to them and say, is that how you want it? And, that's, and then they have a chance to um, edit and correct. But I, I, I don't want to make them talk like me. I want to hear you know, how they think in language and how they create things in language. And the Spindleworks is, is an art center for adults with disabilities, so five days a week, the whole staff is artists rather than um, people in the social work profession. Um, so they're encouraged to be as creative as possible. And then there is staff there that can help them. You know, they learn how to weave, they learn how to paint, they learn how to make pottery, they, they write poems with me, they do all, they make film now, they're doing filmmaking. Um, and I'm jealous because I want a place to go where five days a week I'm encouraged to be as creative as I can be. You know, don't we all like that idea? Um, and you and after a little while, you the disabilities you don't see that part of them. You see them as as this you know these creative, functioning, wonderful human beings. And you know, so what if their leg doesn't work the way yours does, or they you know, or they're in a chair? Um, you know, sit down when you talk to them. Don't stand over them. But you, but you know, you you make these little adjustments, and then you're all just human, and and conversations are possible. And and you know there are lots of different kinds of language. Some people make it on little type pads. Some people do it with their hands and makes and make symbols and signs. And that's just you know you have to first of all change your perception of what language is. The first two pieces that I wrote for Maine Magazine back three plus years ago now. One was about a young man named Scotty Wenzel, who's now 16, um, and one was. John Imber, who is an artist who has mm -hmm. since passed away with mm -hmm. ALS, and both of those individuals, their their language, their verbal language, was limited by right. their situation, right. but they were absolutely still expressing themselves yeah. Yeah. in ways that, if you just were open to it, just had a little patience. Sometimes that patience is hard to have. Patience is key, and it's it's we're not raised to have patience anymore. I don't think everything's really fast. Uh, and and when you're working with folks with some kinds of disabilities, you do have to change your speed a little bit. Um, uh, with ALS, it's especially hard because you know that the person inside that body that's not working right, their mind is totally clear and hasn't been affected. It's just that they're everything else is shutting down. So yeah, yeah. I mean, so and people with ALS and, and symptoms like that try really hard to find ways to communicate, you know, as they lose the possibilities of, of communication. They're still trying, you know, and, and uh, 
so you have to be patient and help them find that way and and be there well and john john imber he went from painting with one hand to his yeah. other hand and then he eventually painted with his head with a with a paintbrush that yeah. was attached to a piece on his head so it was so important that he express himself that he found another yeah. way physically to do it. And what is it that makes you so compelled to create that, that you will find a way even when your body is shutting down like that? And, and you're, I, I taught a course last year on poetry and walking, and, one of, and it was all about poets who were walking while they were writing. And one of the poets was a uh, Hungarian poet who was walking to a concentration camp and knew that he was going to die sometime within the next probably week or two and was still writing poems all along the way and they weren't about that they were about the beauty of the landscape he was passing through and he was in fact shot and killed before he ever got there and and uh, his wife found his body and the poems were in a notebook and you know right up until pretty much his last moment he was still trying to make beauty out of the world around him and you know like what is it that compels us to do that And that's not just poets. I mean, that's that's all the creative arts. You've been, um, you and your wife, have owned Gulf of Maine Books <laughs> in Brunswick for yeah. how many years? 38. Now? 38, 38 years. years, yeah. And you've seen a lot of changes to the publishing industry. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Probably that's, you know... The same things I've seen. Even the big bookstore chains, they've downsized and shut things down. Yeah. We've said, well, we need to go virtual. and But I still find when I go into a bookstore like yours or um, one of these other smaller bookstores, there's still something about picking up a book and what it represents right. that yeah. does something to me that's different than downloading a Kindle, which is good. I mean, that's, those Kindle books are also good. They have their own thing. But, okay, you're, <laughs> you're rolling your eyes, <laughs> so maybe well, you they don't do, believe they that. Do. But, I um, mean, I, I teach at senior college, and, and with Kindles, you can make the type size really big. Yes. So folks who are having poor eyesight, you know, folks with poor eyesight can read with a Kindle. It's a good tool, and that is a disability. I mean, I'm wearing glasses. I've got a disability. Um, but, yeah, a Kindle, is a, it's a tool. But, but, you know, people come into our bookstore. One thing they do when they come in is they say it smells like a bookstore. And I ask them what it would smell like to walk into a Kindle store, you know. Or what would it, what's a used bookstore going to look like when it's Kindles? Although you can, you'll be able to, to um, learn about other people's lives because the Kindle will, ha will have one person's individual choices. So you can sort of do some psychological investigation that way, I think, a little bit. But no, people, I think people still like the tactile sense of, of holding a book and touching a book and maybe smelling. I don't know what, what the smell is. I think it's mold, but, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. But also people come in in the summer and they get very nostalgic and say, well, we used to have a bookstore in our town. You know, and I'll ask them what happened and they'll say, well, a bigger bookstore came in chase the little bookstore out and then the bigger bookstore closed so now there's not a bookstore um, and they miss it it's it's not that they want to live without a bookstore in their town and and order things from the great Satan online but but they're you know it's like Brunswick had a bookland and a borders um, they were located next to the gate the front gate to the Naval Air Station so when the Naval Air Station closed, they lost several thousand customers immediately, and they didn't last much longer after that. But we're still there. Sometimes the old hippies win. 
Yeah, which is, it's rare, but we're still here. <laughs> what I particularly liked about your bookstore is, and, and I like a broad range of books, so I, I, mm-hmm. like, I like poetry, I like fiction, I like nonfiction, but I really like, I like your spiritual section. I liked being okay. able to go in there and pick up some of these books about Buddhism or Taoism, and, and you seem to have a little bit bigger selection than many of the independent bookstores that I go into. Yeah, p- well, part of that is just my, I was a East Asian studies major in college, and then I, instead of going to graduate school, I wrote to my favorite poet and said, can I come live with you as your apprentice? And I ended up living with him, and he was a part of the San Francisco Zen Center, and had his name is Gary Snyder, and he had a lot of people around him from a lot of different spiritual paths, and they were all welcome and all interesting. Um, and so I left Maine and went out there to California and, and into that sort of milieu. And you know, and they still are all all welcoming and all interesting. I, I go to Italy almost every year, and I've been I've been writing a travel guide to Italy based on um, body parts, basically based on saints' relics. So you know where you can see cool pieces of people around. <laughs> um, so I've spent a lot of time in Catholic churches, you know, and. Uh, and yet I'm this, you know, sort of atheist uh, mainer <laughs> who's got this weird path. Although this year I'm, I'm, I'm about to go to Venice for a month. Um, I've got an arts residency there, so I'm, I'm going to Venice to look at how the stone came to Venice. Uh, my grandfather worked in quarries here in Maine, and, and I've always been interested in, in the granite and how it moved around. So I'm going to go to Venice and look at how the stone moved around and because Venice is just clay and mud there's not much and yet there are all these stone buildings and stone things happening there so I, I'm gonna spend a month investigating that which get, and then hopefully come back like Shabig built these wonderful stone sloops that transported granite so I want to see what the boats were like that brought granite from the Istrian Peninsula over to Venice uh, and sort of compare them to the Shabig sloops and you know just See, that's what I think is so interesting. When I went into your store a few years ago, I picked up a book, um, and I, I can't remember what it was called, like something on fire, but it was about the monastery that burned. And these mm. are the people that wrote Tassahara. the Tassahara yeah. bread book. Yeah. And, yeah. and I wouldn't have picked that up if I hadn't <laughs> gone into your bookstore, because I certainly wouldn't have, oh. you know, Amazon's not going to recommend that for me. But I read that, and it kind of sent me down a path, it sent me mm-hmm. down another path. And of course, I'm, I'm all over the place now still. But And you're just <laughs> describing kind of the same thing. Like, all right, well, I'm kind of interested. My grandfather, he worked in a quarry, and then this sends me mm-hmm. over here, and this sends me over here. Well, that's and there's like a wandering of the mind that's okay and made possible yeah, by yeah. by people sharing their stories. I think yes, I, and, and I think that again, our spirituality section is open to diversity, and, that, and I think that's really, um, you know, when I went to when I went to Cuba, they said as a poet, it, uh, Brunswick has a sister city in Cuba, Trinidad. And I went there with a group of poets and musicians, and they said, for you to understand our city, it's an Afro-Cuban city. We're Santeria practitioners, so, so you guys have to be initiated. So we got initiated, you know, and, and, uh, and we started learning about their religion, which had a lot to do with, for instance, the drum patterns that the percussionists were playing, had a lot to do with the references in, in the poetry that the poets were writing. Uh, and it was important, and and not something you want to build a wall against to keep out, you know. Um, 
but but you know that that being open to diversity enriches enriches your education. I think that you know, and and, and therefore, I mean, I'm, I'm 66 years old, but I keep wanting to follow all those little trails. I'll never get to follow them all, but you know, I keep being interested in lots of things, new things, and that keeps me going. Yeah. I appreciate your coming in today. I've been speaking with Gary Lawless, who is a poet, publisher, and editor and co-owner of the Gulf of Maine Books bookstore in Brunswick, also one of this year's 50 Mainers, also a winner of, I think, multiple well-deserved honors around the state and around the country. Um, Keep up the good work, and thank you for spending this time with me today. Thanks for having me. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine. Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.